Okay, good evening everyone. Hopefully we have fixed the problem of the mono the one channel audio. Can someone on YouTube confirm that we now have uh, audio from both speakers? Testing, testing, one, two. Confirm, thank you. So we finished with the Eightfold Noble Path last night. And I thought tonight we might um, focus more on the preliminary path, the Pubanga Manga, and go over it in a way that's quite similar to the Eightfold Noble Path, but is more of a linear progression. When we talk about the Eightfold Noble Path, it it's a bit confusing as to which comes first, right? It's not quite clear. View comes first, or do they all come together? Yeah, they all happen at the same time, and it's complicated. And so we tend to simplify it um, and give a linear progression, which is only a simplification because as many of you are most likely aware the path is complicated it isn't a linear progression there's a lot of bends and twists and turns and going backwards and forwards it's not as straightforward as we might sometimes wish to make it but Nonetheless, having a sense of progression is quite useful so that as we wander about on our, in our search for enlightenment, we always have a sense of which way is north. Right? We have a sort of a compass to keep us clear on which way we have to go to get where we're heading. So the simplest way of understanding the Eightfold Noble Path in terms of a progression is, is morality, concentration, and wisdom. Sila, Samadhi, Panya. These the Buddha called the three trainings. It was a means of simplifying the Eightfold Noble Path and just make it clear to people, what are we training in? And this appears to have evolved into the seven purifications the Sattavisuddhi. There's a discourse in the Majjhima Nikaya between Sariputta and Punamantaniputta. These two esteemed mm, leaders of the Buddhist religion in the time of the Buddha. And they had a discussion about the seven purifications that one leads to the other. 
you're not practicing for any one of these, but you practice one and then the other and the other, and they go in progression. Just like relay chariots. The king wants to get from one city to another. He gets in one chariot and goes until it he wears it out. And then when it's when he stops, wherever it stops, he gets in the second chariot. There's a second chariot waiting for him. They have spaced out. So each of the Visuddhis is considered like these chariots. So today we'll deal with the first Visuddhi. Visuddhi means purification. It's what the Visuddhi Magga, the, the, the book that we've been studying, is based on. So this is maybe a good recap for those of you who have been involved with our study group, now that we're almost finished. You remember back to the beginning of the book we talked about Sila Visuddhi and this is what we'll go over tonight. The word Sila we often translate as morality or ethics, that sort of thing, but etymologically um, I, it means something like behavior. It's um, Or it's used in that sense. I think literally it just means normal or ordinary. Um, usual in the sense of someone's sila is what they usually do, is what they normally do it's how they normally behave, it's what is normal for them um, so it's used w w it's used f because what's normal for someone is their behavior and what we're talking about when we talk about sila is how someone behaves It's uh, so the the defilements we split up into defilements being the things that we want to get rid of that we say hey these are what's causing us suffering these are what's in our mind that's a problem the the they're split up into three parts and morality deals with defilements that are expressed so expressed by body and by speech as we when we went over right action and right speech. We sort of talked about this, uh, and and so it's often meant to refer simply to not killing, not stealing, not doing bad deeds, or lying and gossiping and that kind of thing, not having wrong speech. But um, it's a little more complicated, as I kind of hinted at. It's a little more complicated, and so. There's a whole chapter on this, and it breaks it down into different parts. Um, the easiest way to explain morality is to talk about the fourfold purification of morality, the chattu parisuddhi sila, meaning that there are four aspects of morality, that if you cultivate them, if you purify them, you can consider your morality as pure. Just keeping rules uh, isn't enough. But keeping rules is the first part of the fourfold morality. So the first one is keeping um, moral precepts. And moral precepts are funny. It's not the kind of thing I would have ever thought myself to get into before I was interested in Buddhism. It never occurred to me that one should have to be particularly moral. It seemed like the sort of thing that uh, people who did because they believed in God who told them, thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do that which if you think about it is a pretty silly reason not to do something 
No. Well, so okay, so is it wrong because God tells me to do it, is it, or or does God tell me to do it because it's wrong? Either way, it's not a very good reason. A better reason is to do it because it's wrong, and then you think, well, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with that? How can we say one thing is more wrong than another, right? What does it mean to say that something is wrong? Once you begin to practice meditation, it, you, you kind of jump on the moral bandwagon because you realize that it does have an impact on your life, on your mind, on who you are. What you do, what you say is uh, is your worst enemy, right? No enemy can do to you what you do yourself. What you do to yourself by what you do to others, for example, how you treat others and so keeping rules seems very much like a no-brainer once you begin to keep uh, once you begin to practice meditation it seems like it's the least I can do is to stop these things that I know are clearly wrong and moreover it's easy you know keeping rules is is easy as long as you can remember them it's um, it's encouraging because, yeah, I may not be the nicest person, maybe I'm kind of mean and angry sometimes, but I don't kill. So that's a start. I mean, really, that's a good start. Killing is a lot worse than the things that I do, so, you know, clearly it's not the be-all, end-all of being a moral and good person. But keeping rules is a very good start. And so, as monastics, those... those um, when, when we take on meditation practice as monastics or when we take on monasticism as meditators keeping hundreds of rules and, and all these minor rules is really more of a challenge than a burden there's no burden to keeping the many many rules of the, mona of the monastic life when you're dedicated to the meditation practice For meditators, not to eat in the morning seems like, or not to eat in the afternoon, to only eat in the morning, seems like a burden in the beginning. But then, it be, as you practice and you see the benefit and you see how, how focused it keeps you, how it, it pushes you to keep your attention on the meditation and to stay efficient, you welcome it and you say, "Hey, this is a good thing for me." Moral, ethical precepts are a good thing. They help me. They lead me to focus my mind, which is the purpose of morality. The second aspect of morality is, uh, or behavior we might call it, is um, the use of requisites. And I talked about this before, how we use the things that we own and the things that we come in contact with. Our ordinary way of using material possessions is for pleasure. We wear clothes because we like these clothes. They make us feel good. We eat food because it's delicious. It also makes us feel good. We have a, a home that pleases us, that makes us feel uh, makes us feel safe, makes us feel comfortable, makes us feel 
happy about ourselves, good about ourselves, proud of ourselves. And we use medicine to make us feel good. We use medicine sometimes to cultivate positive states, right? And medicinal marijuana has become this big thing. I mean, what a joke, really. But for the most part, I understand if, you have, if you're an epileptic or so on, there's apparently really good. I can see that. Uh, but medicinal marijuana because you're depressed is oh I don't want to get into it I'm going to make a lot of enemies off of that comment but it's true and I'm not a Puritan I've done lots I smoked lots of marijuana hashish, hash oil, mushrooms never got into the hard stuff but all that all the stuff surrounding the marijuana culture I was into it for you know not as deep as some and not as deep as people are now but and I hear that nowadays it's much more potent, but um, again, I'm going to people are going to say I'm smug and and critical of others, but it is kind of funny. I mean, think of it as medicinal. I mean, it's a good example using medic medicines just to make you feel good and to avoid unpleasant feelings. To avoid unpleasantness, it's a problem, you know. And this is all a problem. All of all of these things that we use, uh, when we use them for pleasure, when we use them to avoid suffering. I mean, to an extent, it's necessary. If you don't have shelter, it'd be very difficult to meditate. If you don't have clothes, well, being bitten by mosquitoes and and having flies land all over your body and just having to sit naked in the in the, you know in the forest it's it's not really a comfortable way to live not to mention how distracting it is to have everyone walk around naked um so to some extent you have to use and this the buddha recognized i mean this i think is quite practical and reasonable he didn't say everyone go around naked and stop eating and so on. There are religious people who do that sort of thing. He found that that's not really important. I mean, morality is not... Um, let's not say your behavior is not that important, right? So meaning whether you become a monk or whether you live in the world, someone who is living in the world can become enlightened. Someone who is decked out in jewels and finery can become enlightened, a queen a king these kind of people can in certain instances become enlightened but that being said uh, it's important to understand how we use these things um, so we use the w so we try to always remind ourselves why we're using them I mean sure you can be wearing jewels and become enlightened but it's much more likely that you're attached to your jewelry and proud about them and feeling proud about how you look and that kind of thing sure you can say that medicinal marijuana helps you cope but much more likely helps you avoid and ignore the problems rather than dealing with them I mean things like depression are really manageable and, and dealable if we have the right tools in the end it's much more about seeing that these things aren't problems and in all ways you know seeing that it's not a problem I remember speaking of shelter I remember one uh, I, t I tell this story a lot um, I, I've told it before how I didn't have a place to stay and it was 
what am I going to do? You know, I've got to go to this place or that place. I was trying, it was in California, North Hollywood. And I was trying to find a place to stay. And, and you know, I wasn't, th there were issues. It was complicated. And in the end, I just looked at, looked at the situation. I turned around and walked out the door. And I went and slept under a park bench. In, in the middle of winter, it's quite cold, and I slept on the concrete. I just rolled my robes up and lay down on the concrete and fell asleep, and it was wonderful. It was you know, just this freedom and realization that you know it's not a problem. It's not such a wonderful thing that I did, but it's just something that made me realize, as many things have. There was one time, you know, there have been times where I had no food and just the stress of worrying about oh, what am I going to do if I have no food and realizing I won't eat <laughs> that's all it's quite simple actually uh, so realizing why we use these things we use them we use food because it's necessary to stay alive and realizing that we don't need a lot of food so thinking about it this way helps us be practical why are we wearing clothes I mean it's important because uh, clearly these things don't satisfy us not clearly but when you meditate you can start to see clearly that uh, the cause of many of our problems is just our attachment to our possessions our ego and how they feed our personality I have this house and these clothes that make me look attractive or handsome or powerful. And we see how that leads to ego and attachment, how it leads to stress and suffering, ultimately. So is the second, using our requisites and using everything, and being mindful of the things that we use and why we're using them, and not letting them become a source for attachment, defilement, suffering. Not letting them hurt us, create addiction and, and bad habits, make us into bad people so that we cause suffering for ourselves and others. The third one is right livelihood, so purification of livelihood. And we talked about this before. There's not much to say about it. Um, if you're acting or speaking in a way that that is unethical and you're doing that to make a living well that's wrong livelihood it's quite simple but um, there is the added aspect of uh, improper livelihood in the sense of livelihood that gets in the way of your practice it's not necessarily wrong but it's a distraction and you think well most livelihood is a distraction right and the Buddha had to wrestle with this and, and in the time of the Buddha it was a question if you want to focus yourself on enlightenment, you know, spirituality in general, how do you live? You know, what are you going to do? How can you make a living? If you've got all this work to do, how can you focus your attention on spirituality? And so it was a question I think asked in general and sort of thought about. And it has been thought about in most societies. Now I think uh, I would argue that India was more spiritual than most cultures uh, in ancient times 
and and so there was a re this real question about how do you be spiritual how do you how do you really practice spirituality and 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 so they worked at this system maybe not a system but it was kind of an an understanding there were people who supported uh, spiritual people to go off into the forest and do their rituals and meditation practices and seek out enlightenment and it was considered to be a good thing first of all because it's a good thing you know to to think of people in practicing meditation becoming enlightened is great but also i think in more practically is well then those people can teach us right maybe they can be a refuge for me to become enlightened or maybe they can teach me at least how to be a good person those people who weren't so keen on spirituality but wanted to learn how to prosper and succeed and be happy and be good, be good people. So so the, it sort of goes like the, the, this idea of simplifying your life. You know, if you're ambitious and keen on rising up in the world and making lots of money you know, we always we always hear about how how money and spirituality don't really mix, and and how pe rich people have a hard time with spirituality. It's not really the point here. The point is, um, so the point is not the money. The point is how ambitious you are and where your attention is. So it's not really about being rich, but it's about how you live your life. You know, a rich person conceivably could be quite spiritual because conceivably they have a lot of time on their hands and, and don't have to work but a person who's very much dedicated to their work and, and a self-made millionaire or billionaire and someone who constantly can't help themselves and is very keen on business and, and prosperity in a material sense obviously is going to have a hard time um, so trying to find a way and it's important that we try to find a way to be spiritual and not let our livelihood get in the way I mean ultimately this is why the monastic order was, was created to provide a way for people to live without being without having the requirements you know so we eat only enough to survive which means we can really get by on charity by those people who for whatever reason are keen to, to feed us you know, sometimes because we teach them, sometimes just because they think, hey, that's a good thing, kind of like a scholarship. They think, wow, that's, I really appreciate those people trying to become better people, trying to purify their minds, that kind of thing. For whatever reason, there is always this aspect of, of society where people support religious people, and so it is possible and so it's a question to ask. I mean, for most people, it's not going to be possible to become monastic. So they think about how to simplify their lives, find a way to make money and live without having to put too much energy into it, without having to get too caught up in it. So I'm doing good things. And like the story of this potter that we always come back to, Gatakara, who, who uh, made pots. And what he did is he went and found clay by the side of the river and he went and found wood in the forest and he fired up these pots, handmade pots, just simple pots, but, you know, made them very mindfully. He was an anagami. 
and he put them down by the side of the road and when people came and asked him how much those pots were he would say oh give what you want if you think it's worth so many beans just give me some beans if you think it's worth rice give me some rice whatever you think it's worth and that's how he made his living probably didn't do very well right but how simple and he was able to survive and of course there are going to be people who appreciate that and who think wow what a what a noble individual and so really support him and offer him maybe more than the pots are worth I mean you can see how it, it might seem incredibly naive but uh, I think I think people who think such things are naive are overly cynical or are overly reactionary because uh, for sure he would have had to deal with people cheating him uh, but then he would have also found people who are willing to protect him and chastise people who cheated him right you can't escape your karma good karma and bad karma if you have good karma it's hard not to be uh, it's hard not to make a good living and so we don't have to worry so much about it what we should worry about is our goodness and if you're a good person it's not hard to live Number three and number four. Number four is really most most important for us as meditators. So all of this we've talked about is sort of more preliminary stuff. But the fourth one is guarding the senses. Guarding the senses is the most important behavior for a meditator. We talk about behavior, right? We're talking about our actions and our speech. Well, keeping your mind focused on your behavior so everything that you see what does the body do well it sees it doesn't see but it it looks or it it provides the basis for seeing so how does the mind interact with the body through seeing and the problem is of course when we see this is where all our defilements arise we like certain things we dislike certain things whatever we see it affects us and we react to it when we hear sounds, we like sounds, we dislike sounds. Our senses are unguarded. Of course they are. No one ever taught us to guard our senses. It seems like a strange thing to have to do. Until you realize that this is where all the problems arise. This is where we are subjective, where we are reactionary. Where we give rise to liking, disliking. All of our senses... So when we talk about things like depression, anxiety, fear, you know, we think of these as conditions of the mind, right? Like something that's stuck to us, something that's weighing down, or maybe even something that's growing from inside. It's a part of who we are. And we think, kill it, kill it. When in fact these things are arising every moment. When you see, that's when depression arises. That's when anxiety arises. That's when fear arises. When you hear. You hear a sad song and it makes you depressed or you hear someone's voice who you loved but maybe they dumped you makes you feel depressed or you hear people saying things that remind you of better times or you smell maybe you smell good smells bad smells you smell delicious food that you can't afford and you feel depressed anxious afraid this, uh, these arise from the senses tastes, feelings. 
and of course thoughts all of these including thoughts you know this is where our problems arise they aren't problems in themselves but at every moment of seeing hearing smelling tasting feeling thinking when our mind is unguarded there's the opportunity for defilements to come in the Buddha said just like a house that is poorly thatched yata agarang duchanang uti samati vijati just as a roof that is poorly thatched the rain is able to penetrate it leaks evang abhavitang jitang raga samati vijati i think is the raga means Rago samati vichati. Uh, raga is passion or, or uh, ambition, attachment, is able to penetrate. So the mind leaks. We, we, we leak. We are not impervious. It's really remarkable that we have this practice, this way of being invincible, completely invincible, such that nothing can cause us suffering. I mean, that is incredible it should appear incredible I think incredible even people disbelieve it but, but it's quite simple when you understand where the defilements come from they come from our senses and when seeing is just seeing seeing can never hurt you when feeling is just feeling can never hurt you when thinking is just thinking thoughts can never hurt you So that's and that one is obviously that that one clearly gets more into the mind, and the the Visuddhi Manga, the the book, the text says, um, you know, this one's actually can also be categorized in, under the the later purifications, but uh, it is the culmination of morality. If you want to think, what is ultimate morality? It's well, guarding the senses. Two ways of guarding. One way is to just, you know, not look at things. When monks walk, they're supposed to look down and not look around at the world around them. You know, for obvious reasons, it's easy to get distracted and, and uh, caught up in things otherwise. But as meditators, it's just about being mindful. When we say to ourselves, seeing, seeing, we're cultivating right morality. It focuses your mind because it's the right thing to do. It's the right way to interact with the physical world. Seeing is just seeing. Seeing, seeing, hearing, 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 and so on. So altogether, that's morality or behavior. We call it morality because you know, we're, we're thinking of this well. It's not just any behavior. It doesn't matter whether you... Uh, whether you eat with your right hand or left hand it's not about behavior about what you do whether you go for a walk or whether you drive a car it's not that kind of behavior it's about the behavior that actually mean is is meaningful and ethical moral and so ultimately morality in the buddhist sense is being mindful it comes from guarding your senses and keeping them objective so there you go, that's the Dhamma for tonight. Quite a long one. Thank you all for...
keeping with me with it and watching it. So we'll look at the questions. Three questions. Is it recommended in Buddhism that we should gain control of our dreams so we can meditate in our dreams? No, not really. You'll find that as you m practice mindfulness more, you'll dream less. In the beginning, there might be dreams. Uh, in, in the beginning, your dreams might be more vivid because you're stirring your mind up, but uh, you know, eventually you'll dream less and eventually not even dream at all. Your sleep will be a time for rest. Does right view in the Eightfold Noble Path mean right resolution in regards to conflicts and problems? No, that's right. That's the second one, Samma Sankapa. Right view is what leads to your intent, your resolutions. So they, it leads to your intentions. Um, oh wait, right resolution. You mean re resolving conflicts? It doesn't mean that, but it you know it's view. So. Say you have a conflict. If your view is that conflict is a good thing, or that if your view is, hey, this person deserves me to yell at them, then the resolution is going to, and that you know, the the sankha, sankapa is going to be, sankapa meaning how you act, how or no, not how you act, how you intend to act. So you think, yeah, this person deserves it, then you get really angry at them. And because you're very angry, then you act and speak in bad ways and so on. But right view is, is how you see things, how you, what your view is on things, what your opinion is of them. Ultimately it comes down to seeing things as, uh, seeing, seeing the Four Noble Truths, understanding the nature of reality as being based on the Four Noble Truths. In my circle of friends we often use swear words. Is it encouraging dukkha because it violates right speech? It doesn't violate right speech. You can swear all you want. Uh, you know, there's nothing, even the word, should I dare I say some of these words? I don't know. Maybe I won't. I don't mind t saying them myself, but, uh, you know, just because, you know, this is a live broadcast. doesn't violate right speech. Um, someone sent me a video once by Osho, and, and I'm not a follower of Osho, and I think there's probably a lot of problems associated with this guy, but he, 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 he said one of, he, he, some of you probably know this video, it's on YouTube, uh, about the four-letter word starting with F, uh, F-U-C-K, I mean, it's not really even a bad word, it's where it comes from is for unlawful carnal knowledge, apparently, it's just an acronym, so it's amazing how it's become such an important word. And he, he, it's really funny, he goes through all the ways that we use the word, uh, yeah, the many ways that it can be used, and it's a weird video, in fact, but um, there's nothing wrong with any word. It's really, wrong speech has to do very much with your intentions. So, right speech is really in the mind. It's It's kind of weird that it is, but... It's much less to do with your speech and much more to do with your intentions. But the point being that 
intentions are one thing, but when you act or speak based on your intentions, it's one, it's an, another thing entirely because it has much more far-reaching consequences. That's all. Okay, so or is it only the attitude? Yes. Yeah, so if I insult someone, that's right. Yes. Yeah, so if you insult someone and say, "F you" or "You're an S H I T head," that kind of thing, you know, that's bad, obviously. But you can call someone a buffalo. That's a bad thing as well. That's bad speech. Call someone. Uh, uh, what are the words? You're dumb. That kind of thing. I mean, there's a list of them in the suttas. I'm just trying to think of, but you know, the insult. Any kind of insult, even if, even if it's it's meant as an insult, but it isn't an insult. The fact that it's meant as an insult is makes it bad speech. Okay, so that's everything. I couldn't get the audio feed working. Hopefully it works because I did something, changed, messed with the audio, so it rejected it. I'll have to look into that. If any of you were relying on the audio stream, my apologies. But you can't hear this anyway, so... Anyway, thank you all for tuning in. Have a good night. <laughs>